If you turn with me to your bulletins, the passage preached to you today will be coming from Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to read from verses 13 to 26. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And this is God's word. A few weeks ago, we started a new series, and uh, we're talking about the influences of Metro Presbyterian Church, the vision, uh, the, the many passages of Scripture that have impacted and influenced our harpy, what makes this church tick. And we said that the first and foremost value that encompasses all the other values of Metro Presbyterian Church is that we are a gospel-centered community. We desire to be a gospel-centered church with gospel-centered values as a gospel-centered community. And basically, these series of passages are passages that have influenced me, that have changed my life over the years. And um, I thought it would be incredibly helpful um, to share about our vision by sharing about these specific passages. Now, this passage... Matthew chapter 16. It's one of the most revealing passages where Jesus teaches about what? Spiritual finding. Finding yourself. And it's important. Why is it important? It's important because we live in an era that's dominated by a quest for self-discovery. We all want to find ourselves today. And Jesus, in this passage, he asks a very significant question. He says, who do you say I am? And the teaching, you know, immediately follows with this. If you know who Jesus is, then that's going to be the way that you truly find your real self. Now, this narrative, it's very, very neat. It comes, I love sermons like this because it comes very, very neatly packed in three parts. Jesus' praise of Peter, that's the first part of, this, of the passage, then followed by Jesus' rebuke of Peter, and then finally his teaching on the cost of discipleship, what it means to deny yourself and follow after Christ, to take up your cross, 
Three things we're going to learn. First, the praise of Peter. We're going to learn about who Jesus really is. Second, we're going to hear Jesus' rebuke of Peter, and that's our flawed understanding of who Jesus really is. And finally, Jesus' teaching on discipleship. And that's how we're going to learn about our real identity, who we really are. How do you find yourself? First, the praise. Jesus' praise of Peter. And we, here we learn about Jesus' real identity. He begins by asking his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Probably one of the most important questions that a person can come to conclude in his life. Verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? The disciples respond. They say, some say, you know, you are John the Baptist. Other people say you are Elijah. Still others say you are Jeremiah. Other people say you are one of the prophets. Jesus asks in verse 15, who do you say I am? And Peter says something absolutely remarkable. He says, he confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus praises him. He says, blessed are you, Peter. Because he says, the thing that, your conclusion about who I am, it's something that you could not have arrived at on your own. It must have been given to you by God the Father himself. Remarkable praise. Why was it so remarkable? What was so remarkable about Peter's confession? Because Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you. The Greek word is petros. He says, you are the rock, and I'm going to build my church on you as a living stone. What was so remarkable about this confession? Peter says, you are the Christ. In other words, all the other people say that you are a prophet, and you are a prophet, but you're not just a prophet. You're the prophet that all the other prophets looked forward to. You're the prophet that all the other prophets had looked beyond to see. It's a remarkable statement. In other words, all the biblical prophets, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, even John the Baptist, they all pointed forward to a day when the key to salvation would be revealed. Everybody looked ahead to that day. Peter's saying, everybody, all the prophets pointed to this prophet, but you point to yourself. All the other prophets would teach And when they teach, they say, thus saith the Lord. If you read in your Bibles through the books of the prophecies, you always read at the end of a paragraph, thus saith the Lord. Here's what the Lord says. The word translated in Hebrew or in the Greek is amen. So you would say something, you would proclaim a teaching, and at the end of the teaching, you would say, this is God's word. This is God's teaching. Amen. But you never end with amen. You start with amen. In those days, the rabbis would sit and they would teach and the people would validate. They would teach their teachings and the people would sit there and they would nod their heads. They would think about what the the rabbi's teaching. And at the end, they would say, I validated what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying. Amen. He says, you take away the right for all people to say amen. You take away for the right for all people to validate what you're saying. You start out by saying, I tell you the truth. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, In other words, I'm taking away your authority to validate what I'm saying because whether or not you agree, this is truth. A remarkable teacher, more than a prophet, more than a religious leader, more than a teacher. Prophets always point to the truth. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. Prophets always point to the way to be reconciled with God. Jesus, you always say, no one can come to the Father except what? except through me. All the other prophets point to a set of teachings, 
point to the law. Jesus, you point to yourself as the fulfillment of the law. So this confession of Peter is absolutely remarkable. And based on that confession, Jesus blesses him. He says this could have only come from God. Verse 17 to 20. He blesses him, an amazing blessing. Now, if you don't understand or if you don't agree with Peter's confession on the true identity of Christ, then you don't have the foundational faith, the foundations of faith that other Christians have. In other words, you can't just see Jesus as a moral leader. You can't just see him as a a religious teacher. You can't just see him as a good person. No one can just sit there and dismiss him as that. If you read and if you listen to his claims, you either have to outright reject him or totally embrace him. You can't just say he's just a nice guy. Jesus is wholly different from all the other prophets of the world. All the other prophets, all the other founders of their own faiths say, you have to obey this set of teachings. Thus saith the Lord, this is what you have to do in order to be saved. But Jesus says what? I've come to fulfill the law. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. I've done it. I've fulfilled the law, and I've paid the price for those who couldn't. In other words, you can't live up to his teachings. Jesus says you can't live up to the teachings. You can try. Jesus says you can't earn God's favor on your own. You need somebody to speak on your behalf. You need someone to live on your behalf, somebody who is absolutely perfect. You need to place your record into that person's record. You have to come to the reality of who Jesus is. That's Peter's confession. And that's the praise. The second point is Jesus' harsh rebuke. Immediately after, it says, from this moment on, from that time on, meaning from that moment, continuing on, Jesus starts to predict his death. He starts to talk about his suffering. And this just completely throws Peter for a loop. And he says, never, Lord. This will never happen to you. What does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. He just started out with an incredible blessing to Peter. On you, I'm going to build my church, he says. On you as a living stone, I'm going to build my church. Immediately turns and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. Why the rebuke? Why the curse? What did Peter not understand about who Jesus was? Why did it warrant such a harsh response? What Peter, what Peter misunderstands about Jesus. I mean, Jesus did this in public. He actually rebuked him in public. It wasn't like he wanted to humiliate Peter. It was for all the church to see. It was for all the church to know so that we don't make the same mistake because we often make the same flawed misunderstanding of who Jesus is. The way Peter understood Jesus was as a leader who would come to free his people. So to stay close to Jesus was an advantageous thing. Why? Because they were under Roman oppression at the time, and they were waiting for hundreds of years for one who would come to redeem them fully and completely. And what Peter understood that redemption to mean was a religious oppression as well as just a governmental oppression, a federal oppression. He thought that Jesus came to to free them from the Roman government. The Jews believed that their Messiah would come and free them from Roman oppression. So Peter believed that this is that anointed person. This is the king who would come to make Israel a nation again. And immediately after Peter's remarkable confession, Jesus says, well, actually, here's my mission. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. 
I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and I will be killed. That's verse 21. He's presenting his game plan to restore the world. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's how I'm going to bring my plan. Here's how I'm going to execute my plan. Not through power, but through weakness. Not through vengefulness, but through surrender. Not through subversion, but through sacrifice. He was connecting for the first time in the history of Scripture. He was connecting for his disciples a prophecy of the Messiah with the prophecy of another one who would come to suffer. If you read Isaiah 53, there are many prophecies of what we believe is the suffering servant. And for centuries, people thought that those two prophets would be separate, different. Here, Jesus, in one conversation, says, I'm merging the prophecy of the suffering servant with with the prophecy of the Redeemer. The Redeemer will be the suffering servant. The king is going to suffer. And that's the reason why Peter just absolutely throws him in a loop. He could not reconcile a king who would suffer. Here's how we look at it. Because here's how Peter looked at it. There's no way that if you are God's chosen one, you would suffer. Because if you suffer, that means I'm going to suffer. And there's no way that if I stay close to God, I should be blessed. God owes me. If I obey, if I live according to his commands, if I do everything he tells me to do, then I will never suffer. I should not suffer because I belong to him. The king must not suffer. The king should not suffer. His people should not suffer. Now, Peter loved Jesus, but he couldn't conceive Jesus as suffering. And yet Jesus says, I had to die. So the mistake that Peter was making was a crucial mistake. It was a critical mistake. He was trying to fit Jesus into his own definition of what salvation was going to look like. What happens? Jesus rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. What does that mean? Why did he say it? Here's why. In Matthew 4, Jesus enters into the wilderness. And there he encounters Satan. And Satan tempts him three times. It's printed there, right there. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. The first temptation was what? Turn these stones to bread. Because Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. He says, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus denies it. He denies it because what he's saying is, you know, I don't, I am not going to satisfy myself. I'm not going to go out there being tempted by you for self-satisfaction. The second was for what? Wealth and power. Satan says, I will give you all these things if you just bow to me. And Jesus, again, rejects him. He is not out for self-fulfillment. He is not out here for self-gratification. The third temptation, he says, jump off from this hill from this high place because the angels, it says, will pick you up so that your feet will not even strike the ground. And Jesus says, he responds, he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The third was for glory, for approval, for love. Jesus says, I will not allow myself to be self-absorbed. And yet what Satan was trying to tempt him, you know, we believe, you know, growing up, I thought that what that meant was Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to sin because if he sins and he's no longer going to be perfect and the whole plan of salvation would come to ruin. But that's, it's so much more than that. Jesus was not just trying to tempt, Satan was not just trying to tempt Jesus to sin. He was trying to get him to have all these things, glory, gratification, wealth, power, Love, approval, 
satisfaction. He was trying to offer all these things without him ever having to go to the cross, without the need for suffering. Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to get satisfaction and fulfillment and and self-centeredness, basically glory, without ever having to suffer, without ever having to die for his people. In other words, if he did that, then he would get all those things, and yet then his people would not be redeemed. And what Peter was saying to Jesus when Jesus was saying, here's here's what's going to happen to the Son of Man, he's going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and he must die. Peter says, no, I cannot let that happen to you. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are trying to be the way Satan was trying to be in the wilderness, to tempt me to have salvation, to save myself without suffering, to save myself at the cost of others, at the cost of my people. You are a stumbling block to me. To become a king without suffering, without ever having to go to the cross. In other words, don't try to fit me into your idea, your understanding of greatness, your definition of what is great. That's what he's saying. Peter's view of greatness, completely different from Jesus' view of greatness here. You see it right here. Peter's view of greatness, to be a high king on a high throne, to have wealth, to have power, to have approval, That's greatness. Jesus says, the way to victory, my way of victory is going to be through defeat. Counterintuitive. Completely upside down. My way to power is through sacrifice by surrendering. Emptying myself. My way to greatness is by becoming low. The kingdom of God can only advance through my suffering through my defeat, through my death. What does this say about our suffering? A lot of us suffer. Now, it's a particular kind of suffering. It's the suffering that comes because of our faith in Christ. Jesus later on says, if any man would come after me, he must take up his own cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what he says. So it's a particular kind of suffering. And Jesus says, if you are living for the gospel, you can expect to suffer. You can expect to experience suffering and humiliation and pain and sacrifice, but the gospel will be advanced. The gospel will be forwarded. The gospel will progress through your suffering and through humiliation, through your pain and through your sacrifice. Now, what he's not saying is, he's not saying, I want you to look for suffering, but he says you need to expect it. A Christian doesn't look for suffering. A Christian doesn't boast in the fact that he's found suffering because he was looking for it. But a Christian expects it. A Christian is not surprised by it. And a Christian knows that God is active in the suffering. Why? Because look at Jesus. The most perfect person to ever walk walk the earth. And yet he suffered. That blows away our understanding of suffering. We think only bad people suffer. Jesus, the most perfect person ever walked the earth, and yet he suffered. But when he suffered, God was active in that suffering. Even in his absence, God was active in Christ's suffering. And if he's active in Christ's suffering, then he's active in our suffering. The essence of Christian maturity is to understand that Jesus' definition of greatness should be the same as our definition of greatness. Jesus suffered. Jesus was rejected. Jesus died. And he calls us to follow. On the other hand, 
Christian immaturity looks like this. Jesus suffered, and as a result, I don't have to suffer anymore, which is why when we suffer, we're surprised. We're bitter. There goes our joy. It, said, it was said that Stalin, Joseph Stalin, ruler of probably the most powerful and at the same time tyrannical regime in Russia at the time, in the USSR back then, on his deathbed, here's a man who was about to enter into seminary and yet rejected the call and became the, one of the greatest leaders of Soviet history. On his deathbed, his last action was to raise his hands in a fist to God before he breathed his last breath. Our suffering can either lead you to tremendous bitterness or what you can do is you can know that God is active because he's active in the work of Christ. If he was active in Christ and he says we're going to follow after him, take up our own cross, then he's going to be active in our suffering. Don't be discouraged by suffering. Don't be brought down by your suffering. Don't just try to avoid your suffering. Don't, don't be bittered, embittered by your suffering. Know that Jesus is active. Which means that if he's active, look to advance his kingdom in it. There is a reason for our suffering. If Jesus took the ultimate suffering for us, there's a reason for our suffering. It's not meaningless. It's not like all the existential authors like Rilke and Camus say that there's no meaning in our suffering. There is absolute meaning in our suffering, what we experience on a daily basis. That was the reason for the rebuke. Final point is his teaching. Jesus continues on in what is a very famous and powerful and popular passage that uh, people who grow up in the church know. I'm going to read it. Verse 24, he says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? In our world today, there are two ways that we define ourselves. The first way is the traditional way. The way we define ourselves traditionally is through your collective, the family, the group, responsibility, loyalty, honor, duty, obedience. In other words, you are who your family says you are. If you picked up a New York Times in the 1950s, and if you turned over to the, uh, the, the nuptials section, the marriage section, and if you read the people, the list of the people who got married, it always began with a name and which family he came from. But the second way that we define ourselves or that we pursue defining ourselves, and that's the modern way or what we call the postmodern way, is through self-discovery, individuality. Remember the movie Ants? It's an, it's an animated movie, Ants. Woody Allen is a star. He's a, he plays the character Z. He, in the beginning of the movie, he is on a, a psychologist's couch. And there's a psychologist, a psychologist ant sitting on an ant chair. And uh, Z is struggling. And the, what's his struggle? He says, I feel so insignificant. And the psychologist says, well, now that's a breakthrough. And Z is surprised. Because the psychologist says, you see, Z, you are insignificant. And it's an animated movie, but the camera kind of pans out. And all of a sudden, although he's lying in his psychologist's couch, you see the hundreds of thousands of millions of ants all marching 
along the same path, doing the same work. And that movie typifies the two types of views that we have. The individuality view, the self-discovery, the person on the quest to find himself, embedded in a world where family, loyalty, honor, obedience, and responsibility are the key words in our lives. Those are the two ways that we view life. Jesus, he wants you to have an identity. He wants you to find yourself. But he says the only way you're truly going to be able to find yourself is to be clung to him. Apart from yourself, you're going to lose yourself. Apart from him. Jesus claims that the only way that you can truly find yourself is what? He says here, if you lose yourself, he says, if you want to follow after him, if any man would come after me, he must what? Deny himself. You must lose yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. That's verse 24. In other words, if you want to be his disciple, you have to first lose yourself. If you want to first find yourself, you have to first lose yourself. Now, remember, he doesn't say, if you want to come after me, you must die. That's not what he says, because if you die, you've truly lost yourself completely. He says, at the same time, he doesn't say, I suffered so that you would never suffer. Jesus suffered so that you could become like him. He says, I want you to take up the cross Take up your own cross. Follow him. When you suffer as a Christian, you're going to advance the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. That's what's going to stop you from stepping all over other people to get ahead because you're following the old definition of greatness. When you start to follow after Jesus, you're following after his definition of greatness. That victory comes through defeat. That winning first comes through losing. That surrender is the hallmark of our faith. When you stop putting other people down to make yourself feel better about yourself, that's painful. When somebody has hurt you, it's very natural to want to retaliate. But when you hold back, when you relent from that, that's painful. It's suffering. When people are mocking you or scoffing at you because of your faith, it's easy to want to get self-justifying or defensive. But when you hold back and you pray for them, there are people who do that throughout history. That's remarkable, first of all. It's something only God can do. But that's losing yourself for him. That's what he says. If you lose yourself for me now, what does he say here? The very act of losing yourself. The text here, he says... um, In this passage, he says, uh, whoever uh, comes after me must first deny himself, take up his cross, follow after me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, he doesn't say whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. He says, you're going to find it. The Greek word here is is the word psyche, where we get the word psychiatry, where we get the word psychology. In other words, there's a spiritual finding. The key to spiritual finding is first losing yourself for Jesus, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. How do you find yourself? By losing yourself first. Jesus goes on to say, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? This is what Jesus is saying. In our day and age, our primary pursuit is family, career, 
wealth. Security. That's what we're looking for. Our achievements are really just a way of achieving or getting. You know, you may be getting awards. You may be getting acknowledged. But that means nothing. It may mean something. But you're looking for security. What those things say about you. We're looking for worth. We're looking for a sense of worth. That's why we need the degrees. That's why we need the wealth. It's not, it doesn't just impact people. You know, we always question people who seek high salaries. It's not so much, you ever see watch the movie Moneyball? It's not so much the money that we need. After you get a certain amount of money, you're set. It's what the money says about you. It's what the money says about your worth. That's why we seek these things. That's why we pursue these things. Jesus says, if you put your life, if you put your soul into this, it's going to make you work. You're going to work hard. You're going to pursue, because it's endless. You know, when you have a $500,000 salary, you think you're set. But you know what happens in reality? What happens is you're looking down on everybody who makes less than you because you've arrived. But you're also looking down on everybody ahead of you because they're the greedy ones. They're the ones who, who stepped all over people to get where they are. You know, and, it, and we become very bitter on one hand and at the same time very mocking on the other. We become alienated. You know, when we were built for community, we, were, we become very alienated. When you put your soul into your work, you're putting into your work because it's what the award says about you. You're pursuing the reward. Jesus says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet your soul has been forfeited? Why? Your career, your money, your wealth, your achievements, your status, your pedigree, your ethnicity, your reputation. These are all things that we can easily put our identities into. But if you, the moment you do, these things will promise something, something that will last. But they will only last as long as those things last. For instance, think about it. That person who makes $500,000 a year. All the while, he's mocking everybody under him who makes less, and he's mocking everybody ahead of him who makes more. And he's growing bitter, and he's growing fatigued and tired because he's working, and he's working, and he's working. He's placing his self-worth in his wealth, but his identity lasts only as long as that job lasts. What happens when he gets laid off? He's lost himself. Jesus says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul. Your identity will only last as long as the approval lasts, as long as the love lasts, as long as the experience lasts, as long as the feeling lasts, as long as the money lasts, as long as the career will take you, as long as your health lasts, as long as your children love you. We are built by nature to put our soul into things. Jesus says, If you want to find yourself, I want you to put your life in me. First, you have to lose yourself, meaning let go of the pedigree. It doesn't mean deny it. It doesn't mean let go of it altogether. It doesn't mean abandon your family. But what he's saying is let go of your grip on the family. Let go of your grip on the career. Let those things stop controlling you. Your pursuit, your desire to be loved or to love others. You got to let those things go. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. See yourself through your suffering. When you start to do that, you're going to start to suffer. It creates immediate suffering. Christianity doesn't promise a fulfilling life by itself. It's not always fulfilling. Let's face it. Sometimes it's very hard. And yet what he says is, you will find yourself. Why is that? We still haven't answered the question. 
we are built by nature to put our soul into things. But he says, if you free yourself of those things and take up your cross and take on Christ, follow after Christ, let him be the thing that you put your soul into, why is it that you will not be disappointed? It's because his love lasts. It's because his glory lasts. It's because his embrace, his approval, his righteousness lasts. For the sake of your soul, we do all these things so that we can get a sense of worth. But for the sake of your soul, Jesus exchanged his own identity. God himself exchanged his only son so that he could become sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the only person who ever, ever truly secure in his identity, truly secure of himself because he had an intimate relationship with the Father. He knew where he stood with God. There was no insecurity. There was no uh, questioning or doubt or skepticism about that. He came to earth. And in Philippians chapter 2, it explains that he emptied himself. From the moment that he was born, he emptied himself. That's how he was born, from the start, in a manger. And on the cross, what do you see? He was giving up his glory. In fact, he called that sacrifice his glory. He lost his job on the cross. He lost his position on the cross. He lost his status on the cross. Ultimately, what he was saying, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? My identity is gone. I put my soul, my worth in the love of God. And he has forsaken me. I've lost my identity. I've lost my meaning. I've lost my purpose. I've lost my status. I've lost my pedigree. Everything that I took pride in is gone. Jesus' identity in the Father, yet out of love for us, sacrificed his identity. Why? So that we could have an identity. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost myself. I've lost myself. I've completely denied myself, and now God himself, my soul, has forsaken me. He sacrificed his perfect record, his righteousness, so that we could be made righteous. And this is why, this is the key to finding yourself. Why? When you look at the cross, when you look at Jesus' suffering, then and only then can you find your real identity. When you look at the cross and see that the righteousness, the righteousness of God is suffering on your behalf, you realize who you really are. Beyond all the fakeness, behind all the achievements, behind all the things that we do to cover over our insecurity, what do you see? Who you really are. That insecure, flawed person who's always looking, craving a sense of worth. Some of us crave it, through the love of other people. Some, when we feel popular, we feel good. When we lose popularity, we feel bad. Some of us are always working for the ultimate promotion. Just when you, you say, if I can only get that promotion. And once you get it, you work and you work and you work and you work and you sacrifice hours and hours and hours. You sacrifice your family, you sacrifice your children, you sacrifice your relationships, and then you get promoted. And then you work and work and work for the next promotion. 
because you realize that if you don't work, you lose your job. And if you lose your job, you forfeited not only your job, but your soul. Will you cling to the love of Christ? Because when you see the Son of Man suffering on the cross for you, for you, that is eternal self-worth. That is the eternal measure of your worth. If God himself, if you were the only person left on earth and God is saying, I would send my son to die and transfer his righteousness to you and take upon your sin on the cross for you, isn't that a measure of worth, the true measure of worth? That's when you get to see how sinful, how weak, how flawed. That's your true identity. And yet, that's when you'll realize how loved how treasured, how much worth God, God himself declared of you. That's your true identity. Will you live in the light of God's love this week? What does that mean? You know, on one hand, it means that it's going to humble you. You're going to stop trying to pad your resume every single time you talk to somebody. It humbles you because you realize who you really are and what you're trying to do to cover over all those things. It's like cosmic makeup so that you can feel more beautiful. And yet God says, you want to know how beautiful you are? Look at the cross and what was sacrificed on your behalf. He says, I'm willing to die for you. That's a measure of worth. Will you live in the light of that love? It means that's the end of bitterness. It means that's the end of all the comparisons that we make every day. It means that's the end of the working and working and work just to earn approval or love. It means it's the end of all the, uh, the bitterness that comes from the fatigue, that comes from all the things that you've lost and given up. Live in the light of God's love and his grace. That's how you find yourself. That's how you'll experience joy because in there is joy. In there is God's faithfulness. And even in suffering, you'll experience joy because you've found yourself. You're still secure about who you are in Christ. Will you do that this week? Let's pray.